Welcome to the Europe in the World podcast. In this series, we will discuss the very relevant topic of European energy policy and the unfolding energy crisis. We invited four different guests to join us in this series. This podcast project is overseen by Dr. Kaya Shielde, Associate Professor of International Relations at BU's Party School of Global Studies, and Jean Monet Chair in European Security and Defense. My name is Lisi. I'm a master's student in international affairs at BU. And I'm Greta, also a master's student in international economics. I'm Jacopo, an undergraduate senior in international relations. I am delighted to welcome Richard Stubbe, a longtime energy industry executive and consultant, and a lecturer at the Questrom School of Business at Boston University. Good afternoon, Mr. Stubbe. Thank you for agreeing to be part of our podcast. Glad to be here, Greta. Thank mm-hmm. you. Uh, Mr. Stubbe is joining me today for a conversation on the state of Europe's energy crisis and the future of energy in Europe. I'd like to start with a broader question and get more specific later. If we were to identify strengths and weaknesses in the EU's energy market, what would they be? The strength of the EU's energy market has been, at least for the past 30 or 40 years, is that the policy foresightfulness of, of, the, of Europe has recognized the need to diversify its energy sources and also get its energy from cleaner sources. Um, that's the strength. The weakness has been that they've made some decisions that they've locked into, which have been at cross purposes sometimes with that that set of objectives. Uh, in in compared to other uh, populated regions of the world, uh, Europe is very densely populated, but is relatively energy poor. Uh, it doesn't have much fossil fuel resources. Uh, it started its, its development in the industrial area based on domestic coal resources, but relatively soon it realized those coal resources were relatively modest and relatively expensive. So it relatively quickly, uh, Europe uh, emerged as, a, as an importer of energy. Uh, initially oil from the Middle East, uh, its, its economy became very heavily dependent upon oil in the 1960s and 1970s when the oil crisis from OPEC in the 1970s uh, caused Europe to be on the van- become on the vanguard of both energy efficiency and renewable energy. So that's all good. Uh, the problem is that it uh, um, also started relying very heavily on natural gas from Russia uh, and at the same time um, in the wake of Chernobyl in 1986 uh, and Fukushima in 2011, it started retrenching away from uh, a nuclear. And so as a result, it has really gotten itself into a position of extreme reliance on natural gas imports from Russia. Now, I believe that what Europe is doing at the moment is figuring out a way to wean itself without reverting back to coal uh, or, other, or, or relying too much on natural gas, 
uh, but instead accelerating the transition to lower carbon sources like renewables. But they're in a bit of a pickle right now. There's no denying that. Well, since you mentioned this transition, do you uh, think that they will actually succeed in substituting away from fossil fuels at the moment amid an energy crisis and when pursue those renewable goals? Well, I certainly think they're going to accelerate and amplify their renewables uh, initiatives, which are moving heavily towards offshore wind and um, by extension are building on top of that. Uh, an aggressive move towards green hydrogen. I do think they're going to have to backfill the, the, the natural gas supplies from Russia with other natural gas supplies, probably from either the U.S. or the Middle East. The big challenge, I think, the, the wild card, I should say, uh, in Europe is what's going to happen to industrial energy demand in the next five to ten years? Will the industrial sector of Europe, which is extremely important to many of the countries in Europe. And so many uh, European countries lead in certain aspects of industrial manufacturing around the world. They've been able to maintain their competitiveness at the energy prices that Europe has faced in recent decades, which is above world averages. But now that we're moving to energy prices that are considerably higher than that, is the are the industrial sectors in Europe going to be able to survive that? If they cannot, which is which presents a real problem, then that will dr- dramatically alleviate the supply energy supply needs of Europe in 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 in. in quite significantly. And as a result, Europe may not need to backfill so much natural gas. On the other hand, that will come with tremendous economic pain. And so it's, you know, that may be a, 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 a path to a faster move to a, to a, a zero carbon energy supply in Europe, but it will, it would come at considerable economic expense um, and social disruption in Europe. And since you mentioned uh, very high energy costs, actually, this leads me into my following question. Uh, recently, political leaders in Europe have expressed their intentions to put a cap on gas prices. And so I was wondering what consequences would this have for EU governments and energy markets as a whole? Well, if, if, if the EU and, and its governments are able to put uh, to figure out some way to implement a a price on nat- a cap price cap on natural gas prices in Europe, that will isolate the economic harm or you know, pain uh, that consumers will feel. The problem I see with that, though, is that the magnitude of volumes and the the, the, the difference between the cap level and the market price level is so significant. Mm-hmm. I don't know how the governments are going to be able to maintain fiscal solvency mm-hmm. uh, in the face of, of a significant price cap movement. Um, they could, if, if, if not done carefully, it could lead to rampant inflation. Uh, and or a significant economic, uh, long-term negative economic consequences uh, for the European economy, because I just don't know how the governments are going to be able to afford 
subs it's it's effectively a subsidy a price cap and i don't know how they're going to be able to afford that unless they either go into extreme austerity or they start printing money which leads to mm-hmm. you know large inflation. inflation so it's a very very difficult uh, needle to thread mm-hmm. so if price caps are too costly do you think that um the eu will look into importing LNG from the U.S. perhaps to a greater extent but over the long term. So we see that since last October of this year, dozens of U.S. LNG cargoes are sitting off Europe's coast waiting to unload. And, and so my question is, do you think that the EU will embrace these strategy in the following years, or is it just a short-term buffer, given that the winter is behind the corner? Well, the winter is just around the corner, uh, and there's very little that Europe can do to really solve the problem for this winter, and maybe even for next winter. I mean, none of the none of the long none of the structural solutions that are necessary will be implementable quickly. Um, I do believe that there will be increasing imports of, from from Europe of LNG from some combination of the United States and the Middle East. You mentioned about is that just a short-term band-aid or a long-term uh, solution, and it's probably something in the middle. It's probably a, a 10 to 25-year solution, um, and that's enough time for the massive investments that would be required in new capacity to export from either the U.S. or the Middle East and all the ships associated with that, as well as new importation facilities that would need to be built in in Europe as well. Those are multi-billion dollar investments. They don't happen overnight. Not only do they not happen overnight, they need to be amortized over many years or else you're going to be facing exorbitant prices for the for those LNG shipments. So I suspect it'll have to be something like 10 to 20 year type commitments for relatively significant volumes beyond that 10 to 20 year time horizon. By that time, maybe a lot more of the renewables, the offshore wind, the green hydrogen, perhaps some massive interconnectors to Africa that enabling um, uh, solar power from the Sahara Desert. Uh, and Middle Eastern deserts uh, to be imported to to Europe. It all stems back to though the the fact that Europe is is very heavily populated and doesn't have a lot of good indigenous energy resources. So it's going to be an importing um, place for energy pretty much, you know, for time immemorial, um, unless and until it can build off a lot of offshore wind and green hydrogen uh, production capabilities. Otherwise, it's just going to be importing, if not LNG, uh, then uh, you know solar uh, from North Africa or the Middle East. So since you mentioned North um, Africa, um, I have actually a question on Africa, and I'm particularly interested in Sub-Saharan Africa. What potential do you think Africa, and particularly Sub-Saharan Africa, um, has... Uh, today amid an energy crisis to help Europe diversify away from our Russian energy sources? Well, global the energy markets are global. Uh, the oil markets are definitely global. LNG markets, by their nature, 
are global as well. LNG markets have been less mature than oil markets, but LNG economics have been improving in recent years such that the minimum increment to become economically viable is getting smaller and smaller. So as LNG markets get more liquid, higher volumes, more transactions, um, African economies, African countries that have gas resources can begin to participate in global LNG trade. Mm -hmm. And I think they will. Um, but the first and preferred choice, I believe, for most or many importers of LNG will be some combination of the U.S. and the Middle East, mm -hmm. uh, in part because of the larger volumes and the uh, the in most cases, lower production cost economics, as well as the lower the lower political risk. Mm -hmm. Many African countries, as we know, unfortunately, have a much more considerable political risk and currency risk, risk of the assets being nationalized or repatriated or uh, not protected from a security standpoint. And so I think African countries, while being a potential a new player in the global LNG supply, mix, um, I don't think that they will rise to become the preferred source of, you know, for, for many importers of LNG. But they could potentially rise to become exporters of wind and solar. Well, from sub-Saharan Africa specifically, you're talking about an extremely long transmission to go all the way from sub-Saharan Africa through the Sahara. Right. across the Mediterranean to, to, to Europe. And so I think that, that to the extent there'll be African or imports of energy from Africa to Europe, I think it'll be mostly solar from mm -hmm. the Sahara rather than from solar or wind in the sub-Saharan sub Africa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to ask uh, you one last question. Uh, which um, concerns the use of future in energy specifically. What do you envisage being the use ambitious plans for the long and perhaps very long run? Well, as I've be begun to say, uh, I think there there is a significant movement afoot for for so-called green hydrogen. Green hydrogen, the the word green means how to produce hydrogen in a manner that that re results in zero carbon emissions. That can be done with combination of wind and solar um, using electrolysis. In the case of of Europe, there's extensive uh, and ambitious plans to do lots more. I mean, lots more offshore wind in the North Sea, mm -hmm. off the Atlantic coast, in the Baltic Sea. Um, and when you generate a lot of offshore wind out in the oceans, what you can do instead of creating transmission lines to power the, the continental electricity grid, you can actually create the hydrogen out there in large scale on essentially, they're talking about building effectively energy islands out mm -hmm. in the ocean mm -hmm. where they would become large centralized centers for hydrogen production using wind and the water that's out there on the ocean, of course. That's not going to be, uh, that's not going to come without massive investment. So that will be very ambitious. That can be augmented, like I said, by tr better transmission connections to allow importation of solar from, from 
um, from uh, Saharan Africa and also from uh, the Middle Eastern deserts. Um, also in the long run, and this is not just true for, for Europe, but other countries like the U.S., North America, Australia, Asia, uh, I think you will see an eventual renaissance of uh, new nuclear technologies, but in a very different way than the nuclear technologies that have been uh, developed and in, in utilized for the last 60 years in, in the electric power sector. Nuclear designs that are inherently safer and essentially impossible to cause a, a meltdown and an explosion situation, and certainly to the extent that we can move to fusion, which not only avoids the 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 potential issue of a of a meltdown, it also avoids the 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 the, the creation of, of radioactive waste. <laughs> that obviously is a is a game changer, kind of a, a, a um, an, an ideal long run solution. You know, some people are optimistic that that might be reasonable in the 2050 time frame. Maybe by the 21, maybe by the 22nd century, we could be there. Another, but I don't think think you even need to go to that degree of um, either ambition or exoticness. Um, there are technologies to generate electricity from the deep, deep warmth of the Earth's crust. Uh, geothermal energy has been a, a niche energy supply source for decades, but it has relied basically on being deployed wherever there are rifts and cracks in, in the, uh, the plate tectonics of uh, the geologic, uh, uh, the continental plates. There are geothermal technologies under development right now that can actually extract warmth from anywhere in the deep terrain. and. There's no reason that can't also be deployed in Europe just as it's deployed or can be deployed in, in North America or Australia or Asia or Africa, pretty much anywhere where there's terrain. And so if we get to reasonably affordable deep or so-called deep geothermal uh, energy, that might come even before nuclear fusion comes. Mm -hmm. So uh, those would be some of the things that are in the, on the prospects of the 2040, 2050 time horizon. But, you know, that's mm -hmm. that's not tomorrow. tomorrow. And, and going back to this winter and next winter, even the LNG solutions that we're talking about aren't going to be ready by then. Those take a couple of years at least, even if you start breaking ground now. And, and amassing the billions of dollars of capital to do it, which haven't been done yet. So no matter how you slice it, the next few years uh, uh, in, in Europe will be very painful, mm -hmm. very, very high energy prices, uh, probably a fair amount of curtailments and um, uh, what is called demand destruction, mm -hmm. where people um, you know, run their thermostats at very low temperatures during the winter. Industrial activity is probably going to be significantly hampered, mm -hmm. uh, and it's going to it's going to require tremendous sacrifice by almost everyone in Europe mm -hmm. uh, for the next two or three years, maybe. Well, thank you for a very insightful conversation on the complexities behind the U.S. energy market and its future. Thank you, Greta. I enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs>